I invite you to turn in scriptures to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, found on page 848, at least in my Bible. Reading now God's Word. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Will you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can meet here this morning and worship you and hear your word. Lord, I pray that you will help the delivery of your word. May it be faithful and true. May it strengthen our faith. May it revitalize our love for you. May we leave here thinking, wow, what an awesome God we have. I pray for your spirit's help to make this happen this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me start with a little story. I like to collect dirt. When my family goes on vacation, I like to scoop up a little dirt from the places we visit and keep it in little bottles. I don't know fully why, but my long-suffering wife allows me this odd habit, and I have a shelf full of these little bottles of dirt at home. Well, not long ago, my family was at the San Jacinto battlefield near Houston, Texas, and I was keen on getting a little bit of dirt from that historic place, and as I was walking along, most of this dirt was kind of hard and packed, but I saw one patch that looked a little softer, and it had a few little holes in it. So I, I stuck my hand in it and grabbed a handful and was about to put it in a little plastic bag when suddenly I felt several sharp stinging sensations on my hand. So I dropped the dirt and looked, and lo and behold, I had a bunch of little ants biting my hand. So without delay or second thought, I started slapping them and squishing them and brushing them off my hand. Later, as I was reflecting on that incident, I thought, well, one of the things I thought is what kind of nincompoop sticks his hand in an anthill to collect dirt? But I also thought how easy it was for me to dispense with those ants. And it wasn't even their fault. I invaded and demolished their home, but thought nothing of squashing them and slapping them off my hand. And then I thought about how the distance between me 
And those ants, in terms of power and ability and intelligence, maybe not the intelligence part, but how that distance is incredibly smaller than the distance between me, between us as humans, and God in terms of power and abilities and knowledge and value. And yet, God desires to deal with us. And I ask, who are we, Lord, that you even bother with us? As you know, that is exactly the question asked by the psalmist today. When I consider the heavens, the moon, and the stars which you have set in place, what is humanity? What is man that you are mindful of us? The psalmist turns the looking glass, the telescope towards the heavens, and becomes acutely aware of our smallness. Now, I will grant you that when you turn the looking glass the other way and make it a microscope, you're inclined to say, wow, what amazing creatures we are. But that's a, a sermon for another day. That's a sermon for Psalm 104. Here, the psalmist turns the looking glass toward the heavens and says, wow, we are so puny. Why is God mindful of us? So bear with me, but, but let's do what the psalmist did for a few moments in an attempt to get a, a gut deep, a visceral sense of what the psalmist experienced. Let's step into his sandals. Let's do what he did. Now, we don't have the night sky in front of us, so let's just talk about this for a little while. Let's start by looking at our sun. Our sun is just really kind of an average Joe kind of star in the universe. It's just a medium-sized star. But compared to our Earth, it is huge. You could fit 1.3 million Earths inside the sun. The sun is our closest star, but if you were to take a road trip traveling at 70 miles an hour, it would take you 152 years to get there. Traveling at airline speeds, it would take you roughly 20 years to get there. Consider another star. This one is named Alpha Centauri. How far away is Alpha Centauri? Well, here's an illustration for you kids. Let's say, let's say I have a piece of paper, and let's say the thickness of that piece of paper represents 1,000 miles, just, just the thickness, the space between my thumb and forefinger, 1,000 miles. How tall a stack of papers do you think I would need to represent the distance between here and Alpha Centauri? Do you think a stack as, as tall as the pulpit? Or maybe as tall as I am? How about a, a stack to the ceiling? How about as tall as the Washington Monument? Actually, you would have to make that stack of papers 1,600 miles high. If you were to put it on its end, it would extend from here to approximately Las Vegas. With the thickness of each sheet representing 1,000 miles, that would represent the distance between here and Alpha Centauri. Now, where is Alpha Centauri? In, in some distant galaxy, some distant other neighborhood of stars? No, it's in our galaxy. Is it at the very farthest end of our galaxy? No, actually, Alpha Centauri is the closest star to the Earth besides the Sun. 
in the fastest unmanned spaceship we have to date, it would take 18,000 years to get there. And there are billions of stars in our galaxy. Billions, an estimated 200 to 500 billion stars in just our galaxy. And there are billions of galaxies in our universe, all with billions of stars. Scientists tell us it would take approximately 150,000 years for light, light which travels at 186,000 miles per second, it would take 150,000 years for light to get from one end of our galaxy to the other. And there are billions of galaxies in our universe. It would take light over billions of years to get from one side of the universe to the other. Here's another analogy. Scientists who have made all these calculations and estimates, and it's a little bit controversial because they're dealing with estimations, but scientists who have made these estimations tell us that you can fit about a billion grains of sand in one cubic foot. And they've estimated that the number, they've taken an estimation of the number of grains of sand from all the beaches on the earth, all the coastlines and, and all the lake beaches, all those grains of sands, they've estimated the number. If you put all those sands in one place, you would literally have a, a mountain or a mountain range of sand. And then, based on estimates of the number of stars in the universe, they tell us that each and every single grain of sand from that mountain range of sand, each and every mount, uh, grain of sand would represent approximately five stars. So imagine that, a little piece of, of sand that you can hardly see, chop it into five pieces, and one of those microscopic chips might represent our sun, in which you can put 1.3 million Earths, on which there are already seven, what, seven billion inhabitants. Wow. Next time you're at the beach, just let the sand go through your fingers and, and think of that. So what does that say about you and me? Puny. Indescribably puny. This was the shore that the psalmist landed on when he looked up at the night sky. And, and we're puny not just in terms of space, but in terms of time as well. I don't want to get lost in the weeds of, of the young earth versus old earth uh, debate, but, but Whatever theory you ascribe to, you still believe that God is eternal. So, so just try this on for the sake of illustration. Let's just say that, that the universe took billions and billions and billions of years to get to where it's at. And, and let's just say, for the sake of illustration, that, that this isn't the first go-around. Let's say God had a universe before this one. And, and why stop there? Maybe he had a dozen universes before this one, each which took billions and billions and billions of years. Or let's just say he had a billion universes before this one. And let's just say after this one, he'll have a billion more. Again, I'm not saying that did happen or will happen, but the point is eternity would allow for that. It would be possible in eternity for that to happen. Eternity is a long time, folks, and we inhabit but a minuscule place in it. So again, what does that say about you and me? In the context of unfathomable space 
and eternal time, there are not words to describe how puny we are. Without God in the picture, we are about as close to zeros as you can get. We are grass. We are a breath. Scripture doesn't shy away from this message. Consider Psalm 103. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. Where I went to medical school, there was a painting of a man outside the main lecture hall of the school. A larger than life-size painting of this very important person. And I was trying to remember the name of this person and just could not recall the name. So I asked a colleague at work who's about 25 years younger than I am, graduated from the same school, graduated more recently than I did, and I asked her, could she remember the name of this very important person on this painting? Nope. Couldn't remember. This very important man for whom was painted a larger-than-life-size painting this man's place remembers him no more. Just like the divinely inspired ancients told us. And then I thought, who's going to make a life-size painting of me or of you? And even if they do, who's going to care? I had a friend and roommate in seminary, a man named Jim Ventolin, who was struck down by cancer at an early age. And in a sermon he wrote, anticipating his own death, he says, you know, it's strange to think about how friends you enjoy now will meet five, 10, 15 years from now and you will almost never come up in conversation. How you will become for everybody an increasingly vague memory how before long you will be as out of mind as you are out of sight. And then he quotes these words from Psalm 103 and says, for the first time in my life, I have felt those words in my gut. I've always known those words, but now I've lived those words. I understand now that my place will know me no more. I realize that there is no hope in a name I've made for myself or some sermons I've written, or some legacy that I've left, or any goodness that I've accomplished, I will be swallowed up in death, and my place will remember me no more. Consider also Psalm 62. Men of low estate are but a breath. Men of high estate are a delusion. In the balance, they go up. They are together, lighter than a breath. We are tempted to think that in our accomplishments resides the measure of our worth. We strive like the Babel builders to make a name for ourselves. The world tells us that if you have beauty, brains, brawn, or bucks, not that any of those are wrong, or if if you have influence or reputation or popularity, then you've got standing. Then you've got worth. Hogwash. Scripture says that is abject nonsense. 
Men of high estate are a delusion. If you think you've earned worth and significance because of your accomplishments, you are delusional. Not long ago, my family and I had the opportunity to investigate some tide pools along the ocean in California where sea urchins and starfish and crabs live. How silly, how utterly stupid and foolish if one of those crabs perched itself on the edge of its tide pool and felt pride in its little crabby heart because its tide pool was three feet in diameter compared to its neighbor's two-foot pool against the backdrop of the vast adjacent Pacific Ocean. How foolish of us to take pride in accomplishments of possessions, of influence, of a name we think we have created for our puny selves against the backdrop of eternal time and unfathomable space. Here's another thing about stars I didn't mention earlier. Did you know that stars have life cycles? They, they are born and then they grow and expand and eventually die out and contract as white dwarfs or explode as supernovae. And the same is true of our sun. Our sun will continue, is projected to continue to expand until its very diameter extends well beyond the present orbit of the earth because the sun will become so big the earth itself will become enveloped into the sun. And long before that, if the Lord tarries, everything on this earth will be vaporized. All our proud accomplishments, all our babels, all our monuments, all our cities, our Mona Lisas, our Shakespearean sonnets, our Beethoven symphonies, our pyramids, our inventions, just like that, vaporized if the Lord tarries. Granted, that's not projected to be until another billion years down the road, but if the Lord tarries, that's what's in store for this place. Even thoughtful secularists get this. Think of Shakespeare in the words of Macbeth. Life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Consider those venerable philosophers in the rock group Kansas. All we are is dust in the wind. Indeed, people, if we take a hard-nosed look at our puny place in time and space, without God in the picture, without God in the picture, one rational conclusion is no lives matter much. Without God in the picture, I've got nothing for you, nothing to pin your worth and significance and meaning upon. So is this all there is? Are we really just a bunch of hopeless, worthless, death-bound zeros? Does the psalmist just look at the night sky, realize how small we are, shrug his shoulders in despair, and walk away? No, of course not. You see, the question is not really, what is man? What is humanity? Stopping there. That, that, that's not the question. The question is, what is humanity that you are mindful of them? It is God's mindfulness of us that is really the focus here. And it is our smallness as a backdrop that makes that mindfulness so 
absolutely, so mind-bogglingly incredible. How can it be? How can it be that this Creator, this King of unfathomable space and eternal time, stoops to be mindful of puny little us? But He is, and that He is, is a testimony to His majesty, His glory. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. And how is He mindful of us? While taking our cues from the psalm, for starters, it is He who created us. The One who spun the planets and galaxies is the One who knit us together in our mother's wombs. And that in itself gives us enormous worth. There was news recently about a sketch from Leonardo da Vinci, recently discovered. Just a sketch that's valued at $15.8 million. One of his most famous paintings recently sold for $450 million. Why so much? Because these are recognized to be the works of one of the greatest artists in the world, one of the greatest artistic geniuses. But we all are the works of the greatest artist in the universe. And what's more, that master artist created us in his, you know the next word, in his image. We all bear the image of God. Granted, we smudge that image. Sin mars that image. But image bearers of God we are. Again, of high worth. Not by virtue of what we have done for ourselves, but what God has done for us. And as part of that image, He appointed us to be His co-rulers of this place. He wants us to administer His rule in this place. He intended to partner with us, if you will. I think of partnerships that we, we, we see and hear about today. I think of law firms, Anderson, Smith, Jones, and Perry, Attorneys at Law Incorporated. Well, with God, it's kind of, just let me read some names from the directory here. It's Fenema, Fickert, Foster, Fox, etc., 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 and God, Partners in Dominion, Incorporated. Granted, we would be rather the junior partners in that arrangement, but what an amazing thing it is, a position of glory and honor. But we messed it up, folks. We rebelled against His rule. We sought to go our own way, to make a name for ourselves, to build our babels, to secure the blessedness of the garden through our own collective efforts without God. And how does the God of the universe respond? Why, those pesky, puny, miserable creatures. Why do I bother? I am so done with them. And swat, swat, squish, swat away like pesky ants. No. And this really boggles the mind. This creator of unfathomable space and eternal time wants to be right. 
with us. He wants to be right with us. He wants us. He doesn't want there to be ill will between us. He doesn't want there to be bad blood between us. He doesn't want us to be estranged. He cares about our relationship. He yearns for us, puny, pesky creatures that we are. He yearns for us as only the love of a God could. And in some incomprehensible way and for some incomprehensible reason, He wants to be right with us. And to really blow your mind in order to become right with us, this creator of unfathomable space and eternal time becomes one of us. He takes on our flesh to pay the debt that humans owed to receive the punishment that humans deserved because he is still a holy God. He doesn't stop being God in his love for us. In order to bear the guilt of humanity as only a human could, and to bear the weight, the ferocity of God's revulsion and punishment of sin as only a God could. He took on our flesh, became a God-man, and died for us, and paid our penalty, and rose again. Hebrews 2, which quotes this psalm in the New Testament, says, We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Only in and through Jesus are we right again with the God of the universe. And so now as the redeemed, we take up again that mantle of co-regency, co-rulers, not in an, in an attempt to make a name for ourselves or to build our babels, but to proclaim and put into effect God's God's reign in the world. I think of the things that were talked about at last week's service. In that frame of mind, we, we live godly lives in the eyes of the cameras in China. And we live exemplary lives in our universities and schools for our siblings that will come after us. And we fight to clear away some of the jungle of poverty and dysfunction in Haiti. We are mothers, those mothers and fathers who keep a home and teach their little ones to pray and pray for the children in the neighborhood as well. We create art and beauty that honors God and delights the senses. We apply our best engineering skills and send spaceships to Mars or sp expend our skills to, to keep the air and waters around us clean. We work to keep our land clean and to manage our waste in safe and orderly ways. And on and on and on we could go. So you see how this reality of God's amazing mindfulness of us in the face of our smallest can make such a difference in our lives? For one, it prevents pride as we've already discussed. We're always tempted to look around and compare ourselves to others. And when we do, we can always find those whom we think we have done better than. And we're tempted to pride. But it is God who gives us the ability to accomplish things, and our accomplishments are not the measure of our worth anyway, and they are really so very puny. And when we compare ourselves to others, we can always find those who have done better than we have, and we're tempted to shame. Yes, God wants us to do the best we can with the gifts He has given, but our standing before God is rooted not in how we measure up through what we have done, it's rooted in God Himself. Our value before God is based in what He has done for us, 
We stand before God only because we are covered in Christ's righteousness. These realities lighten the rejections we all face in life. Yes, we all need community. We all need belonging. And when we feel rejection, it hurts. But when the, it's the king of the universe who wants you, who wants to be right with you and assigns you the role of co-regent, co-ruler, maybe those rejections are not quite so poignant or significant as we once felt them to be. These realities root us in meaning and purpose, give us a mission as co-rulers to put into place His rule in the, in the world, in whatever walk of life He has placed us. Remember those words that Pastor Peter quoted to us on Easter from Yaroslav Pelikan? I think if the psalmist were alive here on earth and, and saw what Christ has done, I think he would think that those words are quite in keeping with the sentiments of his psalm. Namely, if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. So now you pesky, puny ants, you image bearers of the divine. You redeemed co-rulers with God. You sons and daughters of the creator of unfathomable space and eternal time. Know the majesty of your Father and revel in his astounding love. Amen. Will you pray with me, please? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, it does amaze us that you desire, you, the King of the universe, desire the love of our poor hearts, and we confess that our love is exactly that. It's poor, it's faltering, it's, it's feeble, tarnished. Forgive us, Lord. Thank you that you remember that we are dust. Thank you that you see us clothed in Christ's righteousness. Lord, we acknowledge that we even need your help to love you as we ought, to love you more and to serve you better. Please, with your spirit, give us that help, for you are so deserving. And as we pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>